0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio
2: WA.
3: And a very happy Monday afternoon to you. Today, as the mango season heats up in Northern Australia, keep your eyes open in the supermarket because there are some new varieties there this season and they've got some really catchy names
4: one is called yes the yes mango the second one that usually um, is mature a little later than the yes one is called Uh aha the later season one which comes in after the first two is called the now mango so we've got yes Uh aha and now Look out for those in a supermarket
3: near you. And an idea to grow oysters at the Abrolhos Islands of WA's Midwest Coast started over a couple of drinks.
5: I was at home with a mate of mine and we were having a couple of beers and decided it would be a good idea to grow oysters at the Abrolhos. So we decided to uh, have a look into it and um, put put the application in and for a couple of leases over there and, and they got accepted. So uh, the... Got the ball rolling. Uh, That was back in 2016. Been a bit of a journey from there.
3: You'll meet co-director of Abrolis Island Oysters, Josh Johnson, just after half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And some of Australia's largest cotton growers have started buying land in a small section of Western Australia's far north. And that's pushing up land prices. As Alice Marshall discovered, the main reason for the interest is, unlike cotton growing regions in the eastern states, water is not in short supply in Cunanara's Ord Valley.
6: For the past century, the majority of Australian cotton has been grown along the upper Murray Darling Basin system in southern Queensland and northwest New South Wales, and not without water usage concerns. It's a drought prone part of the nation. A fact weighing heavily on local farmers there at the moment, as many chose not to plant a winter crop this year due to the lack of rainfall. But when the rain does fall, the productivity of the soil makes it some of the most expensive in the country.
1: Probably around that twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a hectare is, is pretty indicative um, of permanently irrigated country.
6: That's Heron Todd White land valuer Bart Bowen, who covers the Border Rivers region of northern New South Wales and southern Queensland. And it's important to note that in those calculations, he's included the water values in with the land values. For comparison's sake, in that part of the world, water licences are traded separately from the property and are worth around $6,000 per megalitre for high security water access. So... Does this guarantee water for those irrigators holding the licences?
1: No, so it's it's it, it, it's a little bit like ses, assessing a, a carrying capacity. There's obviously going to be years where you know you'll be able to run more stock, or or you won't be able to run any in, in this type of uh, drought that we saw in 2019. And and similarly, it's not to say that they'll always be water um, or, or there won't be more water.
6: While irrigated farmers in eastern states rely heavily on river levels being above a certain point to pump water onto their crops, the Ord Valley works very differently. That's because of the Ord River Irrigation Scheme. It's fed by Lake Argyle, the largest water storage facility in mainland Australia, holding more than 20 times the amount of Sydney Harbour. It means farmers in the region have access to 17 megalitres of water per hectare per year, 95% 95% of the time. His land value of Frank Peacock, who covers the Northern Territory and the Kimberley.
7: You know, that supply also sort of flagged to other farmers in the rest of Australia who were going through drought at the time that there was potential land on offer in, in reasonable quantity. And because in the last four or five years, we've definitely seen, I guess you'd say an influx of buyers from, yeah, the East Coast, New South Wales and Queensland, which, you know, has, Put a bit of competitive tension into the market over there. So it's been interesting to watch. Can yeah. you
6: talk me through some of that dramatic rise in, in the figures that you're seeing people pay for land up here?
7: It's not like in the East Coast where you have just a, a large data sample with lots of properties and you know lots of sales. It's, um, typically, it's, it's a small number of properties and it's still the same in the order. It's relatively small number of properties and, and therefore a small number of sales. But in the end everyone's looking at those sales um, so I know probably back in 2018 19 you know there was trickle flow of uh, of uh, sales started happening and that were smaller properties typically 100 hectares or less and that was sort of around that 9 to 11000 dollars irrigated hectare so that's the land ready to go inclusive of water you know probably 17 megs a hectare and typically when you when you have a smaller property the rate per hectare is often higher because it's just a lower lump sum value but then we had some bigger, bigger properties sell, larger area, you know, getting up to, you know, three, four hundred hectares. And more recently, that, that rate seems to be up around anywhere from, I reckon, $16,500 to $19,000 a hectare. And that's for, yeah, for more land. Uh, so some reasonable lump sums, you know, six, $7 million acquisitions.
6: For Southern Queensland valuer Bart Bowen, who's used to seeing irrigators operate with less than six megalitres to the hectare, the appeal of the ord makes sense.
1: Oh, To, to me, it just sounds like a tremendous volume of water availability and, and at a pretty reasonable price. Yeah, interesting. Obviously, there's some, some pretty significant environmental you know, condition variances between the Moree Plains and, and, and where you're sitting at the moment up there. But um, yeah, 17 megs of water is pretty hard to walk away from.
6: Now, the decisions behind growing certain crops in certain areas is something that Professor Marcus Randall at Bond University studies at length. He's recently wrapped up research focused on growing thirsty crops in the New South Wales Riverina.
8: That research showed that within the next 50 or 60 years, uh, broadacre crops like cotton and canola, uh, given that it will be hotter and drier, and water availability will become more scarce. That perhaps we should rethink how much of those we should be planting.
6: But when he heard that broadacre farmers in the eastern states were buying land to grow cotton in the Ord, he was hopeful.
8: I think that's potentially a very sensible idea. The thing is that climate change is a reality, and at the moment, a lot of a lot of action would need to be taken to 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 keep it similar to what we have at the moment, that's incredibly difficult. So planning on living with the effects of climate change is the area that we're looking at. And adaptation like taking water hungry crops like crop, like cotton that are incredibly essential and looking at where there is better water availability while still having very similar conditions to where it uh, currently is grown is is a good thing to consider
3: and might actually yield much much better results into the future. Climate Professor at Bond University, Marcus Randall, ending that report by Alice Marshall. 12 past 12. There's only about 28,000 hectares of land currently available for use in the Ord River irrigation area. So you'd think that when some of that land goes up for sale, the local farmers would be the first to know. But that's not necessarily the case. Recently, the sandalwood company Quintus sold 517 hectares of land privately to Ron Greentree, a large-scale grain grower from northwest New South Wales, for the impressive sum of seven point six million dollars. Fritz Bolton grows cotton next door, and says he didn't even know Quintus was selling that block.
9: Yeah, look, it was very interesting to to hear that. And I'd been working with Quintus for twenty years, and and had expressed a desire to have an option to buy that. And I was happy for Ron that he bought it, and I think he'll do a really good job, and it'll be really good for the North.
6: Was it tough not to receive a phone call letting you know that it was on the market?
9: Yeah, it was, but that's what's happened, and and um, it, it shows I should have been um, should have been on my game a bit more. I, I live right next door. It's certainly something that I've I've learned thank you for teaching me that lesson Ron and next time I'll be talking a lot earlier
6: what kind of pressure does it put on you as a a family farming business who's been in the Ord Valley for 40 odd years to know that there's such interest from major players in the industry from Eastern Australia from established grain growing and cotton regions in Eastern Australia who have a a huge amount of cash flow
9: yeah so I think it, it definitely makes it harder for our little business to expand but the the key thing that's been missing in the order in the north is scale oh, they're, they're the options of what we can grow are endless um, and we've we've grown many many different niche crops and um, you know been able to develop crops like chia that are now distributed all over the planet, but none of them have been at a scale where economically it can add up long term. So having some big corporate and big family operations come to the Ord and compete with us, I think there's more, more benefits than, um, than not.
3: Fritz Bolton, who runs Oasis Farms in the Ord Valley. Quarter past 12. Now, you might be wondering if traditional owners stand to benefit from the interest being shown by large cotton growers. MG Corporation represents the mirrawong and Gajirabang people in the region and it owns close to 800 hectares of farmland in the Ord Valley. Just over a quarter of that land is leased to southern Queensland cotton giant Cubby Farming. MG Corporation General Manager Matt Smith says it's referred to as a joint venture.
10: So, Cubby pay
11: MG a base rate based on the value of the land per hectare, um, and then also MG receive five uh, percent of the overall net sales of the operations. Exactly. So that's essentially how it's is a joint venture. It goes beyond just a lease fee for the land, and then we have some we get some of the profits.
3: But chair of the MG Corporation, Lawford Benning wants native title holders more involved in the growing of cotton on their land.
0: Probably 99% of it is more the cubby side of things. So having the technical person that's on ground doing what he's doing. And again, we need to really now apply ourselves to this model differently and, and really get really involved with this whole crop of cotton. What is it, understanding the soil, understanding the water understanding the planting, you know, or things we need to do to make sure that this particular crop is of value.
6: When you say you'd like to get more of an understanding, does that involve more jobs for local TOs?
0: More jobs, but more so understanding our business in whole, so hands-on approach. So, again, really learning what we need to know and how we need to go further. So if, for example, looking at our young men and women that are really interested in farming... How do we really get them developed and ready? And then, like I said, sit down with Cubby, whoever we need to do sit down with and say, look, this is a model we want to go forward. This is the model we like going to adopt or adapt. This is us going now forward, so then we all grow together.
3: Chair of MG Corporation, Lawford Benning. The lease agreement between MG Corporation and Cubby Farming will be reassessed at the end of this year's cotton harvest, which is now only just a few weeks away. Cubby Farming declined to comment. You can read more on the story on the ABC Rural website. Just search ABC Rural and Cotton and you will find Alice Marshall's story. 17 past
2: 12. You're part of The Country Hour with Belinda Varisgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. We'll
3: look at ways to store fertiliser at your place very shortly and then an update from the newsroom. That's to come here on The Country Hour. First, automated drones and electric aircraft could be used in regional airports within a decade. That's one of the ideas in the federal government's recently released green paper looking at the future of Australia's aviation industry. But if that's going to happen, Australian Airports Association Chief Executive James Goodwin says regional airports will need more financial support to keep up with the latest high-tech craft.
12: Look it is quite exciting and it's almost a bit Jetsons era to have these electric aircraft flying around. They're called the advanced air mobilities. They're not quite a helicopter and they're not quite an aircraft, they're somewhere in between. But this is quite an exciting new development. And in fact, when you look to the Brisbane Olympics in 2032, they're saying that these will be flying around for them. So this is happening. But I can see that there's some benefits for regional and regional tourism in particular. We know that if you arrive maybe on a commercial airline into a regional town or city, You might then need to get to the vineyard or the resort or wherever you might be staying. So these are the sorts of aircraft that might be able to take you those extra 20 uh, or 30 kilometres or so to get you right there. They're going to be electric so that's a whole new energy form so they're going to be quieter and and so on and down the future I mean they're even talking that these things could be autonomous think about how these could also benefit regional Australia to get freight and supplies in and out you can imagine with a road cut off because of floods or bushfires or so these potentially could be a resource for those natural disasters also what about medical evacuations and so on potentially being able to get a smaller more nimble more flexible aircraft in and out is also quite important and something that certainly we should be looking at.
13: With so many regional airports funded through local councils these days, is it going to be financially feasible?
12: We want to make sure that we've got aerodromes and airports that have got the infrastructure that can support the aircraft that we need now as well as the ones that we need into the future the regulatory burden is increasing. The safety, security burdens are increasing. So through this white paper process, saying to the government, the regional airports need support for critical safety infrastructure as well as security infrastructure as well that won't be a lot of money to the federal government but will make a big difference to a lot of those regional communities what we want is um, an extension of the regional airports program and an extension of the remote airstrip program because the infrastructure is old they're starting to reach that end of life and needing that increase in infrastructure support and we know that there's added pressure with more extreme weather so more floods higher temperatures and so on is also having an impact on the quality of the pavement and the infrastructure that we've got there at Aerotrames.
13: Is it also the case that a completely different view of airports in regional areas may be needed?
12: Airports are really good to get people where they need to go. But airports are also facilitators of freight and supply chain logistics. I think we need a whole new thinking about airports and aerodromes and their value to the economy. And decision makers. Politicians need to stop thinking of airports as just being for people who are going on holidays.
13: What's the timeline on this green paper?
12: Submissions uh, need to be in by the end of November. Uh, we're expecting that the white paper which is the recommendations coming out of the green paper that should be starting to come up to the surface uh, around mid 2024 so what we would be looking at in mid 2024 is the recommendations what are some changes that need to be made to policy or regulatory settings but the other thing that we will be looking for is there needs to be funding that goes with it there needs to be funding support for regional australia and those regional aerodromes Funding for infrastructure, funding for security screening for those airports that have the passenger services, and also um, funding for those safety upgrades that might be needed.
3: James Goodwin from the Australian Airports Association, and he was speaking to Karen Hunt. 22 past 12. The Grains Research and Development Corporation is encouraging farmers to investigate on farm fertiliser storage after some were caught short by supply. Problems this season. The corporation has published a guide on investing in storage, outlining some of the options available and also some of the challenges that come with them. GRDC's Graham Sandrill says the just in time business model of fertiliser supply isn't working.
12: There are a couple of issues.
11: Australia consumes about 2% or a little bit lower than 2% of the world's nitrogen fertiliser. So we're Small in the scheme of things worldwide. And of that, that's supplied to Australia, about 92% is supplied in bulk. And ever since the just in time delivery model broke down because of COVID, we haven't had that model come back to its pre COVID status. So supply of nitrogen on farm has been problematic. So those challenges have to be addressed somehow, and one of the ways of doing that is to create a buffer on farm with on farm storage.
14: Okay, so with on farm storage, I guess a couple of things in that you, you, if you've got that stockpile there, you shouldn't get short, and then I suppose you're also not exposed to the the spot market, and you might be able to buy at a, at a better price.
11: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that it allows you to do. One is. You can sit down and do some economics around building infrastructure on farm and what that might return you. Um, It's likely to make its best returns in those high rainfall years where larger quantities of um, fertilizer are required, especially nitrogen. And that's probably the biggest change from if you look back in history. Our nitrogen fertilizer consumptions increase, but particularly in our wetter years. So we're taking Um, more advantage of the yield requirements that we need to hit in in the higher rainfall years. So being able to store on farm, particularly for those seasons, is of importance.
14: But I suppose probably, Graham, I imagine a big reluctance for people to be storing large amounts of fertiliser is that it can be a, a very difficult product to store yes
11: and and that's why partly why we went into producing this information for grain growers is that we wanted to be able to say what storage types you might be able to look at then how the products um their compatibility in different storage facilities how that might work the risks that are associated with it and in particular what we did is we also looked at some case studies and so it sort of provides this peer-to-peer learning where we look at what growers have been able to do themselves in different parts of the landscape, and they've, through trial and error they've improved their own systems and and we've provided those as case studies in this in this document.
14: It's interesting, Graham, looking at granular against liquid fertiliser, that liquid fertiliser, for whatever reason is so much more popular in the west and and not as much in in the East.
11: Yeah, and that's partly a result of the infrastructure that was initially developed and has continued in the west, Um, some supply chain issues um, in the east to uh, speak to that as well. So certainly in the east, we're much more dependent on granular products such as urea for nitrogen and, of course, the storage considerations around that if relative humidity gets too high you can get that can start to aggregate form clumps Um, so there's lots of things to consider it can be corrosive as well so there are some storage considerations around that as well and and that plays into whether you go for silo or or shed storage.
14: Graeme you mentioned earlier I suppose people applying more fertiliser than they have in the past is that I mean, are we going to reach a point where that levels out or is it just going to keep increasing and increasing?
11: No, look, what we've been focusing on in particular is that in the past we've actually under-fertilised in our higher rainfall years. So we haven't produced as much food as we could have in those years for people. So what we're looking to do is try and optimise our efficiency by applying more nitrogen fertiliser and increasing yield for those years. And what it does, if you're more efficient in that process, it reduces your greenhouse gas footprint per tonne. So we're particularly interested in trying to do that to maximise the food production and reduce the greenhouse gas emissions per tonne of application. It will increase to a point where we're getting about 80 to 90 per cent of potential. And then it will level off there until we develop new technologies that take yields even higher.
3: That's the GRDC's grower relations manager, Graham Sandrell, speaking to Angus Verley. 28 past 12. We're well, just before news headlines. Dryland salinity is one of the biggest threats facing Australian farmers. It can stop crops from growing and turn previously productive soils into wasteland. But now one affected farm has started growing edible, salt-tolerant plants, inspiring some of the country's top restaurants. Brianna Fiore has this report.
4: So we've got Warrigal greens. We have sea blight, sea purslane. So you've got this beautiful popping kind of texture going on.
15: We're in the kitchen of one of Western Australia's top chefs, but it's no ordinary garlic infused greens dish that Melissa Palinkis is cooking up today for her customers.
4: They're like very excited to try something different, and I think they'll go for it because they want to know what it tastes like.
15: The chef is using halophytes, salt tolerant plants that look a bit like spinach or asparagus, and they're grown in what would otherwise be considered farming wasteland. She's found the customers are loving the sustainable greens.
4: One of the first things I started doing was pickling. Uh, Now we use them as greens, so um, we would just stir fry them. They adapt to Asian flavours, so cook them down in butter and garlic and um, serve it with some meat, really nice with fish. Seafood um, cooked in butter like a side dish or a side vegetable. Um, So that's more like
16: a sea vegetable that
4: works really well with fish.
15: The halophytes are grown by sheep farmer David Thompson, on his property in Katanning, 300 kilometres southeast of Perth.
17: Well, we were doing uh, um, supplying restaurants with uh, our dry-aged mutton, and we had a chef ranging me and said, "Have you got any saltbush?" So uh, I went and picked some saltbush.
15: It was that question that gave David Thompson the idea to expand and grow more edible salt-tolerant plants that would thrive despite the dryland salinity crisis.
17: I mean the salinisation of the world, it's, 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 happening, it's happening everywhere uh, but nowhere quicker than here and it's a difficult problem to fix, I mean it's taken a long time for it to become a problem and it's going to take a long time to, to repair it. We live in the driest state, on the driest inhabited continent on the planet and the biggest loss of land is due to too much moisture, it's just that that, that that moisture or that water is salty. So let's work out how we can use that to grow products and if we can do that it's a win-win for the environment and the farmer and the, and the consumer.
3: And you can catch the full Landline Story on ABC iview right now. It's up for you. Just go to ABC iview and search for Landline and you can see that full story by Brianna Fiore. It is half past 12 here on the Country Hour and Jonathan Hopper in the studio with the latest news headlines.
10: Good afternoon, Belinda. Israel's military says around 1,000 Hamas militants took part in the surprise attack on Saturday. The Israeli government has formally declared war and launched a series of airstrikes in retaliation in Gaza. More than 1,000 people have been killed and thousands wounded on both sides. Emergency services are warning communities living in the state's north to prepare themselves ahead of this year's cyclone season. Three to four cyclones are predicted, with at least one tropical system crossing the WA coast between November and April. The Weather Bureau says less rain and hot and dry conditions are expected due to El Nino conditions. And aid organisations say those affected by a massive earthquake in Afghanistan on the weekend are very vulnerable and in need of immediate shelter, food and other supplies. The quake and some aftershocks hit on the weekend in the west of the country. More than 2,000 people were killed, but the death toll is expected to rise even further. Thanks, Belinda.
3: Thank you for the update, Jonathan. 29 to 1.
10: You're with Belinda Varasgetti
3: on the Country
2: Hour on ABC Local Radio WA.
3: Great to have you along this afternoon. Still to come, it's off to Muche today and you'll get all the details on the yarding and the prices at the cattle market today. Also, we'll find out more about those new mango varieties that should be in the supermarkets this season for you and the possibility of growing oysters. Very close to that becoming a reality and it's just off the Midwest coast at the Abrolhos Islands. Details. Shortly. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Caroline Crow, with you this afternoon. Caroline, it looks, um, well, one day on repetition each day this week in the South <laughs> Land Division. What's the story?
13: Yeah, uh, we're definitely starting to get into that uh, summer pattern routine, Val. Um, so at the moment, uh, there was a west coast trough over the weekend and that's moving east. Now, as that trough moves east, uh, there are conditions are uh, conducive to potentially getting some thunderstorms today. Uh, so the eastern parts of the southwest land division could see a, a thunderstorm uh, develop this afternoon. Uh, now, the uh, thunderstorms are unlikely to bring uh, any rain or very little rainfall if they do. So there is that aspect of the dry lightning um, with those thunderstorms. Um, yes, yeah, so the rainfall is probably uh, less than a millimeter and the area that uh, we're kind of talking about for the eastern parts is just east of Moroa down through to Meriden and down sort of towards that Esperance area, but away from the south coast and Esperance itself. So sort of northeast of that line there is the risk uh, today for the chance of the thundery shower or well, the thunderstorm. Sorry, uh, there was a little bit of um, a light shower possible along the the central west coast as well overnight last night and uh, earlier today. Um, some likely that a lot actually reached the ground, uh, but that's gradually clearing. There's quite a bit of cloud up there at the moment and then a bit further south today along the south coast. uh, We've had a good deck of cloud um, over those southern districts, but that's gradually sort of easing and lifting as well. Uh, Coming into the next couple of days, Belle, there's a a weak front approaching from the southwest. Now that's going to scrape the south coast overnight or early into Tuesday morning and during Tuesday it's going to move east towards the Esperance area. Um, Showers are mostly going to be confined to those southern coastal districts and just light falls a couple of millimetres expected out of that. Those thunderstorms associated with the trough coming into Tuesday as well will continue through the inland parts, could be little bit of extra rain, but generally not a lot with them still. Similar area to what I've explained today and rainfall tomorrow could be sort of anywhere, maybe one mil to five mils um, out of the thunderstorms. And then coming into Wednesday and Thursday, we're going to see a contraction out of the southwest land division with the thunderstorms as the trough continues to move east and uh, just the isolated odd shower along the south coast and the onshore flow in the wake of the cold front. As we get later on into the western We're going to get a strong uh, high-pressure ridge starting to push through along the south coast, and that's going to then return those winds back around to the east and then gradually to the northeast coming by Friday. They will be a little bit more moderate in strength than what uh, potentially we've seen and we'll start seeing a warming of temperatures again coming into Thursday and Friday as well. Uh, Generally, no weather around coming into the later of the week as well. Um, In regards to uh, minimum temperatures... uh, in the wake of the, the cold front uh, and just the onshore flow, uh, we could see a little bit of colder uh, overnight temperatures coming into Wednesday, Thursday. So inland southern parts of the southwest land division, so th- around the Brookton area and Lake Grace and Wage and Catanning, we could see some temperatures sub-5 degrees. Um, slightest risk that we could see a little bit of uh, frost around, but I would think that it would be pretty isolated uh, if there was anything, bell.
3: And then, Caroline, looking into northern and east parts of the state, how are conditions?
13: Yeah, starting up north. So the Kimberley, the Pilbara uh, and the uh, interior are going to be mostly sunny, dry uh, at the moment. Temperatures are average to uh, just below average through inland parts of the Kimberley. But as you get sort of towards the west Kimberley through the Pilbara and in the interior, they are above, continuing above average. uh, So it's very hot up there at the moment. And then coming later in the week, as well as that ridge pushes through, it's going to push through a good southeasterly surge uh, through the those areas there, so we'll start to see the winds pick up later in the week as we go a little bit further through south into the um, Gascoigne, into the goldfields and the Ucluelet. It is going to be mostly sunny through those parts, uh, but that with the trough, as I mentioned, for those eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division, the, uh, thunderstorms potentially uh, will creep into uh, southeastern parts of the Gascoyne uh, today, into western and southern parts of the goldfields as well. They will be dry thunderstorms. Coming into Tuesday. It is a fairly similar area as well, with that chance again of the thunderstorms and possibly getting into the Eucla and then they will contract southeast by Wednesday into the far southeastern parts of the goldfields and into the Eucla and clearing by Thursday. And then those parts will then see um, that surge of easterly winds as well uh, later in the week. We will see a uh, quite significant increase in temperatures later in the week, as well as those uh, easterly winds bring some warmer air towards the west coast, so mostly around that uh, western half of the Gascoyne uh, area, Bell,
3: And then this afternoon, any warnings today?
13: Uh, currently the warnings are just the uh, coastal wind warnings and that's for the west coast between the Ningaloo Coast uh, down towards the Geraldton Coast uh, in the sea breeze or this afternoon and also along the uh, Euclid Coast.
3: Thank you so much, Caroline. Appreciate that. 22 to 1. Now, checking the rainfall and if we look at, From nine o'clock on Friday morning until nine o'clock this morning, the only region in Western Australia to get any rain was the Kimberley and the only locations to get five millimetres or above were Debesa with 14, Leopold Downs and Napier Downs both had 11. But that is it. Now, speaking of the weather, September 2023, was Australia's driest on record. The average amount of rain that fell across the country was 71% less than normal. National weather reporter Tyne Logan says the dry conditions have been seen everywhere.
18: The Bureau of Meteorology releases these rainfall decile maps. They cover areas in red that have had below average rainfall and it spans from east to west and really quite high up as well. The average amount of rain to fall across Australia this year was just 4.8 millimetres. I was trying to get a visual of just how low that was and, uh, you know, I managed to fit it in a tiny little syringe. So I I don't think, you know, it, it requires too much imagination to figure out just how small that
11: is. Very, very small amount. So what particular areas of the country are most affected at the moment?
18: Yeah, so, I mean, there's this really dark red area, particularly for September around the southeastern parts of the country, and they were really dry before this as well. So during winter we had this kind of like, it's almost like a big chunk out of, um, big bite out of Western Australia that was looking really dry, uh, particularly along the west coast, and then also along the coast of New South Wales and spreading into Victoria. And those are the places that have had a really dry September too.
11: What's behind it, Tyne? What's driving it?
18: Yes, there's always a bit going on when we're talking about the weather, but there are a few key reasons it's been happening. So one of them is the major climate driver, El Nino. It really kicked into gear in September, and that helps drive rain away from eastern Australia. There's a similar phenomenon known as a positive Indian Ocean dipole that's underway on the other side of the country in the Indian Ocean. That also is linked to dry weather really across most of Australia and there's also climate change which has seen a trend of reduced rainfall across southern Australia in the cooler months of the year so all of those things combined plus a bit of natural variability and we've had the result that we've seen.
19: Is there anything good
11: around the corner for them or is this going to continue?
18: I really wish I could say that you know it was going to turn around and it would be the perfect the perfect amount of rain to finish and you know fingers crossed maybe that maybe it still is but the odds are very firmly in the favour of a dry rest of spring and a warm rest of 2023.
3: The ABC's weather reporter, Tyne Logan, with Kit Mocken. 19 to 1. Well, at a time when the sheep industry is struggling with challenging seasonal and market conditions, farmers committed to sheep are prepared to keep making investments. Victorian farmer Charlie Sullivan is a case in point he has just purchased the entire sheepmaster parent stud stock from great southern based breed founder neil gunnett the sale price is undisclosed but charlie sullivan says he's excited to take ownership of the breed
20: we think it's a, an amazing opportunity uh, neil and the sheepmaster team have done an amazing job in getting the stud to where it is now and we see our purchase and the opportunity that we have to take the business on uh, and the breed on to the next level is just a, a fantastic opportunity, and we're, we're very excited about it.
19: Now, you've purchased this dock at a time where confidence is a bit low in the sheep industry. Why are you so confident with this purchase?
20: Yeah, so good question. So um, I think there's, a, there's short-term pain, there's short-term pain in the livestock industry, but we are playing the long game. That's why the ewes that we bought as part of this sale are really important. We're not thinking about, well, we need to get to the market with progeny right away. It's, you know, We're very confident in the long-term prospects for the sheep and lamb market in the country. As I think producers are nationally at the moment as well, it's just a tricky time. There's a lot of factors that are going into that, but we're really confident in the next 12, 24 months that there'll be a significant turnaround in that and we'll get back to back to levels. may not be the same levels that we've seen, the record levels, but we don't need to get to that to create a really sustainable business. So, I mean, that's for the sheep industry across the country. So we're really confident in that.
19: So now that you have the Sheep Master master breed, what are your plans with the stock?
20: Yeah, so certainly initially it's it's – it's business as usual. So we've got a number of rams uh, that we're looking to get into the market uh, as soon as possible, starting with the sale um, of the stud size uh, at White Dog Lane, which was the planned sale previous to the sale of the flock. And then we're breeding, uh, joining all the ewes within the next week. And then, yeah, we're going to go from there. So the important thing is that we get the stock across to Victoria and to New South Wales, get them settled in, get them established, and then, yeah, we'll we'll go from there.
19: Long term, where do you see yourself taking this breed?
20: So certainly we see applications for the sheep internationally. So we already have daughter studs established in New Zealand. So that's an obvious export market, if you like, given it's our closest neighbour and our easiest trading neighbour. So to build on, on that, absolutely, and then to look further afield. So, and it's not anywhere that people run sheep either. It's where people run cattle as well. We see an application for these sheep. You might have seen that the, the slogan is the small cattle breed. I mean, I can assure you they're easier to run than my cattle. They require less management. So, yeah, we can see application for these in a lot of areas.
19: How many animals do you need to get across the border?
20: Yeah, so there'll be approximately 1,500 that'll make the 3,500k journey. Predominantly by the end of November, a lot of those will be over here and on the ground and settling in, and then the remainder will be early next year if there is any left.
19: What sort of response have you received so far since this purchase?
20: Yeah, well, it has only been a short time, but it's uh, yeah, a lot of messages and a lot of interest in, in what we're doing over here. What are your thoughts
19: on the price that you paid for it?
20: Uh, yeah, very confident. There was great intent in the negotiation. Neil and the team over there were, were keen to get a sale through and we were really keen to get our hands on it. So the process was really well handled and managed by Elders. And yeah, we, we're extremely confident that it was a win win transaction.
3: Charlie Sullivan, he's a farmer from Merton, 150 kilometres northeast of Melbourne. He's just bought the entire Sheepmaster parent stud stock from Neil Garnett, who's been breeding the sheep near Albany for decades. Neil says both parties are pleased with the deal.
17: Well, look, um, we are totally over the moon and thrilled. To, and I think Charlie is. Too. I think Charlie actually thinks he's got a very good deal, which I'm sure he has. But I've been watching uh, studs being sold. Um, and for any stud over 50, uh, over 500 breeding ewes, I think what we achieved is well in excess of three or four times that top average. So um, it's been a very good result.
19: So how has a price like that happened considering where sheep prices are sitting at the moment?
17: Well, I think the Sullivan family, and in particular Charlie, who's been in the grains business, has done his research. We've all, you know, I've been around too long, but we've all seen prices go up and down. And if you had to buy something in agriculture, the profit is in the timing and the price you pay. And there's nothing surer when the industry is on its knees as it currently is, that in eighty months, two years, it'll be back to where it was two years ago.
19: Yep. So what would you say is giving Charlie the confidence to to have gone through with this sale?
17: Well, he's seeing the dramatic change that's taking place in agriculture. It's all driven about labour, around labour. There's no labour, or labour is a massive problem In agriculture, shearing, maintenance, shearing sheds, biosecurity, all of those issues feed in to the reason why he was confident to buy the sheepmaster stud, the parent stud. And more importantly, I think he has a vision, which I'm thrilled about, that's probably uh, pushing my vision a bit. He wants to take it to the next stage, which... I'm going to get so much joy and pleasure watching occur.
3: Neil Garnett speaking to Sophie Johnson, 13 to 1.
17: You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour
2: on ABC Local Radio WA.
3: Heading off to Mouchet shortly and Terry Birkin will go through the yarding and the prices at the cattle sale today. Right now, though, it's off to the Abrolhos Islands, just off the Midwest coast, and it's probably best known... For the western rock lobster that grows in the surrounding clear, clean water. But the islands may soon become famous for a new delicacy, this time oysters. A company called Abrolis Island Oysters is almost ready to make its first harvest and has received a regional economic development grant to establish processing facilities in Geraldton. Co-director Josh Johnson says the idea to cultivate Sydney rock oysters started over a few drinks.
5: I was at home with a mate of mine and we were having a couple of beers and decided it'd be a good idea to grow oysters at the Ebola, so we decided to uh, have a look into it and um, put, put the application in and for a couple of leases over there and, and they got accepted so uh, the, got the ball rolling, uh, that was back in 2016, been a bit of a journey from there.
21: Did you think about the magnitude of what you were doing when you were having your beers and thinking oysters would be good, what issues have you come up against?
5: Oh, look, we didn't um, take into account a lot of things, to be honest. It was just a bit of a spare-of-the-moment idea, and, and that me and Justin followed through. Um, look, we've we've had a fair amount of challenges. Obviously, securing water over the islands was a challenge in itself. Getting infrastructure over the islands was also another challenge, becoming body corporate members and the like. And then also, the, the, the biggest challenge to date is the WASCWAP, which is uh, certification we need to go sell the oysters to certify that the water's safe and, and we're doing the right thing in our um, harvesting and um, processing process
21: and have you secured that now
5: we still haven't that is imminent we should get that in the coming months we've already submitted a draft harvest plan and then and the next round of that plan goes in any day and then I, i'd expect around that month period for department of health and and deeper to to do the final review and approve it
21: what sort of volumes have you got growing out at the umbrellas?
5: We've got a couple of million oysters over there at the moment. With vision to next year we'll, we'll grow up to three million so that we can definitely supply a minimum amount of a million oysters per year and we'll grow up from there.
21: What markets are you looking at?
5: The, the market we're looking at is just domestic and, lo- and local to be honest. The, the appetite that once we've put uh, our fillers out there to local suppliers and restaurants, the appetite's been huge. So we haven't uh, done any marketing as such to further afield, we've had great support from local here and we think that we don't need to go further afield at the moment.
21: You've recently received a regional economic development grant to help you establish this business and set up a processing facility, what will you do on onshore?
5: Um, so once they're graded over at the islands they'll, they'll be brought back across by boat. We've got a processing facility here in Bradford Street, Geraldton and Basically uh, they'll be processed in such a way that you can keep them, uh, we'll have a a live facility there that you can keep oysters there live for up to 90 days so that we've got the continuity of fresh supply and not having to go back and forward to the islands every single day. They'll also be shucked and frozen if if that's what people want, but we're predominantly trying to sell them unshucked, fresh.
21: And what's the potential for um, locally produced oysters? What's your long-term plan?
5: So one of our long-term, long-term goals, and, and and relatively short, is part of this grant. Is also we're we're hoping that other oyster farmers come on board. That there, there's there's another active farmer over there with with shell in the water at the moment. And basically, what we're hoping is once we set up all this all these facilities, that it promotes other growers to have a crack and and get some shell in the water. And we can sort of sell the product as as one brand, and get the aquaculture from an oyster perspective um, pumping.
21: When are you hoping to make first sales?
5: Look, we were hoping this year, um, pending the outcome of the OZCRAP certification. However, another challenge is as well as uh, oysters also um, spawn. So we think we're gonna get our certification and they will be empty. So when they spawn, they empty out. There's very little meat in the in the shell. So if that is the case, it may be next year, but late this year, early next year is is first harvest.
3: Co-director of Abrolis Island Oysters, Josh Johnson, speaking to Lucinda Joyce. Eight minutes to one here on the country hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC listen app. Now, as the mango season is heating up in Northern Australia, you really do need to be keeping an eye at the supermarket for some of the new varieties that are going to come online. Uh, one is called Yes. There's another one called Uh-huh. And the third one to look be on the lookout for is called Now. As Matt Barron reports, these three new mangoes have been decades in the making.
2: Do the mango, mango. We all go Around 25 mango. years ago, the National Mango Breeding Program created three new varieties of mango, which promised to taste great, look better, yield better and have a bunch of other positive attributes. But for years, these mangoes languished on research farms and their commercial rollout was bungled a few times. But last year, the company Mambaloo Mangoes was awarded the commercialisation rights... And these mangoes will now be seen in supermarkets this season and they've finally got names.
4: One is called Yes, the Yes mango. The second one that usually um, is mature a little later than the Yes one is called Uh Aha. The later season one, which comes in after the first two, is called the Now mango. So we've got Yes, Uh Aha and Now.
2: That is Marie Piconi from Mambaloo Mangoes who says more trees are being planted And she thinks these mangoes have got a big future.
4: The good news is that all three varieties have flowered very well in all the production regions and there's crops sitting on the tree. Uh, We're expecting double the production that we had last year out of the three new project flavour mangoes. We think they've got a tremendous future. So it's going well. We've got lots of demand from export markets. We're really just sending samples at the moment because we've got to get the trees in the ground all growing up so that the yield and the production volumes are higher and there are new plantings going in so that we can just meet the demand as it's growing. We're going to try to grow with the demand here in Australia and in global markets.
2: Raymond Bin is a mango grower in far north Queensland and back in 2010, he was one of the first to sign up to these hybrid varieties and plant some trees. He told Charlie McKillop that he's long believed in them and is excited to finally see the commercial rollout.
0: Look,
1: the names are definitely... People would just say they're different. Like,
20: everyone that you say to, they do sort of... It takes them back. Yeah, they are different names, but... Um, on saying that they are catchy for that reason. And I think, look, it may actually hit the mark. Like, they're very simple names. And, um, yeah, look, it may just, just work. So, yeah, I, I think it's a great
2: idea. Ian Baker was involved in the early days of the National Mango Breeding Program. And can actually remember eating these varieties in the late 1990s. He says to see them being named and rolled out commercially is significant.
16: Oh, for,
20: for me, this is a long, long project, and it's great to hear. And I think um, Marie Piconi at Man Blue Mangoes will do the right job commercialising this. There's growers out there got them now. Uh, not a lot, but they're out there, so we'll start to see them on the shelves. So, yeah, the, fut- the future for these things is great.
2: You tasted them some 25 years ago. Why has it yep. taken so long for them to reach so, this point?
1: Yeah, so breeding
20: tree crops is hard. It's hard to actually do the breeding bit, like they're make, doing the cross pollinations. All that takes a long, long time. The hard bit, though, in this case, has been getting the commercialisation right, and that's where this has fallen over a number of times. And that's why I think Manblue mangoes and Marie, especially, probably going to make the difference here. Um, I've got friends of mine who planted significant numbers of them, and um, they look. I've been down the farm and had a look, and no, look, they look great.
3: He's been waiting a while, hasn't he, for these to get to the supermarket. What, 25 years ago or so he tested them, uh, those three new varieties, the Yes, Aha uh-huh, and the Now. in Baker, who was involved right from the start in those early days of the National Mango Breeding Program, and he was speaking to Matt Brand. Heading off to Moucher right after this. Hello, I'm Sally Sarah. Join
19: me for The World Today. Israel declares war in response to deadly attacks by Hamas. The region is bracing for further bloodshed. We bring you the latest. What does it mean for the government of Benjamin Netanyahu, which was already facing widespread protests? And villagers in Afghanistan searching for the dead and injured after an earthquake strikes the west of the country. Those stories
3: and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. 1,317 head of cattle sold at the Mouche sale yards this morning. So numbers down, right about 140 on last week. Terry Birkin's been at the sale this morning. Hello, Terry. Can you run through the details?
16: Hi, Belinda. Quality improved today. However, as we are well into the spring season, head numbers remain conservative, with supplies slightly down from last week. Local cattle were more prominent, with some, some pens presenting excellent weight and finish, along with good lines of yielding suited to feedlots. Large drafts of prime local and pastoral cows were offered, as well as big lines of lighter drought-master cross-cows to feeders, along with the usual supply of plain condition pastoral bulls and heifers. Young cattle with condition and breeding held firm, but cattle lacking in weight and condition fell further on recent values, while heavier cattle eased as well. Local villa steers averaged 315 cents and realised 334 cents, while the better heifers sold from 240 to 290 cents a kilo. Local yelling steers at feedlot and live export weights ranged from 200 to 308 cents, and heavier finished steers to processors sold to a top of 258 cents a kilo. Local yielding heifers at feedlot weights ranged from 150 to 262 cents, while finished heifers reached 230 cents a kilo. The best young parcel steers. Sold to 200 cents and the best pastoral heifers reached 186 cents, while young cattle, pastoral or local, in light and plain condition or lack of breeding, were very hard to sell, ranging from 10 to 130 cents a kilo. Grown steers returned 100 to 220 cents, while grown heifers sold from 140 to 186 cents a kilo. Plain store cows started at 14 cents, up to 132 cents with better breeding. Medium cows sold to 158 cents, while heavy cows realised 164 cents a kilo. Shipping bulls remained firm, selling up to 280 cents, while heavier slaughter bulls fell 10 cents, with most ranging from 100 to 154 cents, with only three excellent bulls realising 194 cents a kilo. This is Terry Birkin for MLA.
3: Terry, thank you for going through those details, and uh, Terry's going to be back at Moucher again tomorrow. He's ticked off the cattle today. And he'll go through the yarding and the prices at the sheep market tomorrow. Great to talk to you today. Time for the news on the ABC, one o'clock.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.